0: Today, I'm joined by Charles Haywood. Uh, Charles is a successful entrepreneur, um, an ex-lawyer, I think, and uh, the maximum leader of The Worthy House, uh, which is a an excellent blog slash magazine where He uh, reviews a variety of books, and I think he also has uh, articles that are not necessarily based on books, but uh, but kind of the the book review is is the format that he goes for mostly. Um, And he brings a very interesting uh, perspective to it, which is kind of a right-wing post-liberal lens, uh, which um, kind of I've been been immersed in recently as well. So thank you for, for coming on,
1: Charles. Thank you. I am very pleased to be here.
0: Yeah, it's it's great because I've uh, I've definitely been listening to a lot of your material. And uh, uh, the, because uh, you you write the articles, but then you also record them as a podcast, which is very helpful for people who do things <laughs> in, in life, you know,
1: like. Yes. Uh, originally, I started writing book reviews simply because it helped me remember the books I had read. I don't have a great memory. And I just started writing book reviews and I would post them on Amazon and, and what have you. And then people started reading them. This is 2017 or so. And two years ago, I started doing the podcast version, which is, to me at least, startlingly popular. I guess people prefer to consume a lot of stuff in audio rather than, than written stuff, because more people do the audio versions, I think, probably than than certainly in terms of reading the whole thing. I, I tend to write fairly lengthy pieces in, in a lot of cases. I think audio makes it easier for people to uh, to consume that in bits and pieces.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm definitely a big fan of that. You know, whenever whenever I can get something in audio, I'm I'm just gonna gonna do that because I I like to I don't know be doing stuff as well. Um, but I the one thing that's that kind of stood out for me from from your work is that you're you're probably one of the most meticulous chroniclers of what I call the the post liberal moment. Which uh, essentially involves many, many branches, many authors, many people that you know have have something to, you know, further hat in the ring about post liberalism. Um, I'm curious how you got to this point. What what made you what was the moment that made you think about liberalism and say, hey Whoa, (laughs) there's something about this that doesn't quite make sense.
1: This is an excellent question, and and not one I think I've actually addressed on the blog. So, here we go. This is to to all the people out there listening, this is a a first. So, I I was raised, I would say, mainstream conservative. There's some with some wrinkles. Uh, I was raised on a steady diet of Hungarian irredentism, which you may find interesting (laughs) because my mother's Hungarian and uh, I learned all about Transylvania and its true owners, the Hungarians from an early age. So, This was the late 80s or, or uh, mid-late 80s when I was coming of age. And conservatism had basically one stream that was mainstream, which is Reaganism, which now, of course, has mutated into zombie Reaganism, as they say. So, uh, But I was indistinguishable from all the other college Republicans in the late 1980s. And then I went to law school, as you mentioned, and I practiced as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer for several years, five years, six years, something like that. And this was in the nineties. And of course in the nineties, everybody thought that communism was over. And so everything was gonna be great forever. Um, And I was not particularly politically involved. So really only in the 2000s did I start to get back into reading extensively and start really, Getting back into thinking, and, and I'm ashamed to admit it, but but I supported George W. Bush. I, I know that's terrible now. You know, it, it George W. Bush, as I like to say, God wrought him. I was all excited when he got elected in 2000 and 2004. So so I have I have many sins to atone for. But it's uh it's um, it, I think, even if you read some of my stuff in 2016, I was still I would not say particularly um post-liberal at that point. I think the, I'm sorry about the dog in the background here. You're going to have to cut this out. <laughs> no worries. No, no, it's all <laughs> part of the, the pirate radio appeal. So. So, okay, good. So uh, we have an elderly dog and she likes to bark and stuff. So um, really, if I think if you sat down and parsed through my readings, it was really around 2018, I would say, I really began to turn against the globalism and neoliberalism. I mean, I hesitate to use those terms because a lot of people overuse them and they're somewhat opaque um, to a lot of people simply because of the different uses put on them. But really around 2018, I began to fully realize that uh, many of the elements of our current political moment, our current political culture, were not just bad in the sense of needing some policy changes, but, but were bad in the sense of irredeemable needing to be wholly Removed and reworked. Uh, I, that doesn't mean that I have a particular ideology. This is not I, I'm very careful to stay away from ideology. I don't have a one hundred percent answer to things, but I everything begins with the re, rebuilding of an entirely new system rather than the modification of the existing system. And that's very strange for someone like me who grew up always thinking that what you need to do is elect some new people and then they're gonna change things. Or the the old kind of Republican thing where if we get to more people on the Supreme Court, then we're gonna get the things that we want. Eventually you realize that that's a dead end. And I think that's the single biggest split between people like me and people who, baby boomers kind of stereotypically, who think that a little bit more Reaganism is gonna make it all better nothing's going to make it all better except it completely working of the system. So that puts me in the post-liberal camp.
0: Was it you being in the middle of the system, being a lawyer, getting mugged by reality? Or was it from a
1: specific uh, reading that you had? Uh, an um, epiphany, or both? Also a good question. Um, as I say on my description on the blog, I'm a class traitor and a regime enemy. So it, uh, honestly, everybody I know is kind of... From my background I, mean, I really should be uh, i was a member of the professional managerial elite i was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer at a big law firm and um i wouldn't say there was one particular epiphany i think that the uh, i realized eventually that things had to change and i think part of it is having children so we have several children and it's you see You kind of project the future forward and you look around at the clown show, as I like to call it, and you realize that nothing good is going to happen for your children unless things change. And eventually you realize that things aren't changing. And to the extent they're changing, they're changing in the wrong direction. So they're definitely changing. Everything's changing always in the wrong direction. And many people have made this point. This is certainly not original to me. But I think having children accelerates the need to do something about that. On the other hand, it's also true that if I had stayed as a lawyer, I would never have done any of this because you can't do these things even if you operate under a pseudonym. Originally I operated just under my, my first name because I was running a business, but as a lawyer you're, you're in a big law firm now or even in a small law firm, you just simply can't say these things. So the reason I was able to kind of take this tack and think these subversive thoughts is that the I I had run my own business, and then I sold my own business, and so now I can do what I want. That's nice for me, but there's all these people out there who, who can't do that, and that's tragic in a sense. On the other hand, I'm very optimistic in the sense that I think there are a tremendous amount of people out there who are willing to adopt new ideas who are simply unable to express them and so i think part of my role and your role obviously is to say these thoughts for people so that they know that it's okay to think these thoughts and and uh, one of my hobby horses is we need less policing right word policing the, the right has historically spent in my lifetime far too much time policing its right word boundaries that doesn't mean that I want to accept every single person who might be categorized as the as on the right as someone I want to party with all the time but generally speaking the more subversive thoughts the better and we can build a body of thought out of that that will be useful when the time comes
0: yeah I completely agree that the no no friends to the right approach seems to be like essentially maybe 80% of right wing punditry, there's always just a gatekeeping, you know, 20% is freaking out and hand wringing about all the all the bad stuff that's happening. All the look at these wokesters. Oh, how amazing. Mm -hmm. And then the rest is just like, Oh, no, we're not these
1: guys. Well, (laughs) that's not (laughs) how you do politics. You know, who came originally used the phrase, no enemies to the left. Alexander Kerensky of Lenin in the July days before Lenin took over and kicked Kerensky out. So- Oh, is that, is that the
0: famous photo of Kerensky? I don't know. It might
1: be, uh, I'm not sure, but, he, but he, he failed to purge Lenin when Lenin tried to take over uh, the first time with the phrase, no enemies to the left, and he proceeded to, very much like the current moment after what I, I like to call the electoral justice protest of January <laughs> 6th, very much to a search for imaginary right-wing enemies when, of course, Kerensky's problem was left-wing enemies, but he refused to recognize that.
0: Yeah, and and you you mentioned that you were anonymous for, uh, for a while. What, what do you think about this kind of, um... There's this right-wing uh, anonymous culture that's, you know, I'm I'm very adjacent to that. Those are those are my online friends, and uh, uh, I I really like it. But I'm, I'm curious what you I mean you you now have you know the, the proverbial fu money, which is which yeah. is a very good place to be in. Um, do you think there's there's place for dissidents, you know, face face forward dissidents, even if uh, even without that, would you have done that if you didn't have? Thanks.
1: Absolutely. I, I think there's a place for everybody. Uh, the, and I think there's an awful lot of people who have to remain anonymous. I don't buy into the idea that anonymity uh, undercuts the benefit of a particular thinker. On the other hand, I also don't think that some people maintain that anonymity is a positive good in and of itself. I don't think that's true necessarily. I think the, the movement, for lack of a better term, requires both. And certainly my responsibility uh, is to operate because I can under my own name. I remember when I first started using my own name, which was last year, uh, some friends of mine said, right-wing friends of mine said, well, why are you doing that? That seems to me you're taking some set of risks. And, and my response was, because I'm not in the apologies business, I'm in the winning business. And so if, you, if you're really going to uh, win, you have to use your own name. If someone who is anonymous can only contribute to the discussion, someone who uses his own name can actually uh, do something. And what that is, I mean, right now, it's not clear what do is. But for example, if there was a regime change, someone who operates under his own name can easily slot into a new regime. Obviously, an anonymous person can do that as well. But you have some more of a presence if you have your own name. That doesn't mean that I'm angling to be the next dictator or something. Uh, that sounds like an awful lot of work and I, I kind of enjoy my life. I would rather be the uh, be an advisor to the to the man of destiny than the man of destiny myself. But it, operating under your own name, if you can, I think gives you more options as to what to do in the future.
0: Yeah, there's just also kind of a, a pipeline that I've noticed building in these kind of fringe circles. Like you have the the hard anonymous people, you know, the ones that have no voice, no face, you know seven layers of obsec uh, who can essentially mine the fringes they they go deep the theory cells and they you know excavate weird bits of things that no one can talk about, and then you know they get booted off seven times and then they come back <laughs> in different guises and you know that 's kind of like you know the, the miners at the edge of the empire just digging in the in the dark gold and uh, and then there 's kind of layers of anonymity up to the point where where i 'm essentially kind of exploring these waters, I'm swimming in them, I'm, you know, looking at the nuggets, getting shocked by some some of the stuff Mm -hmm. that I see, but, you know, also kind of bringing back the red pills, the black pills, whatever, and kind of, in a way, not necessarily laundering them, but, you know, presenting them in a way that's palatable to, you know, people who maybe use their, at least occasionally use their own names and own faces in in polite society.
1: I I think the ferment is extremely valuable. And I'm as worried as the next guy about censorship uh, on Twitter and social media and so on. Those things are problematic, but the ferment itself largely manages to route around a lot of those things. So I'm a big fan of the potential for technology. And of course, I see obviously a lot of the potential drawbacks for technology. I'm violently anti transhumanist and, and things like that. But the reality is that as the regime crumbles, which I'm placing my bets that the regime will crumble and and that soon, um, the ability to communicate in particular in a way that was simply not possible even 10 or 15 years ago uh, is invaluable. And so while it is true that there is censorship, it's also true that the same censorship that exists because new technologies create the need and possibility for the regime to censor also allow people to route around that to a large degree in a way that even in the 1980s, if you wanted to run a newsletter, you had to Xerox it and send it snail mail. It just seems insane in retrospect. Now you can communicate, even with the censorship, with a much larger group of people.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's true. I mean, the the amount of you know signal chats and and Discord servers and places where I could essentially find probably almost all the people that I'm interested in and you know in in, in the world um, mm-hmm. is is quite significant. Even if you know Twitter or whoever decides to to unperson me tomorrow, <laughs> uh, and that's good. I mean, Twitter. I think Twitter is really useful in a way. And I you know the, there's this this whole violent backlash that you've seen. You know the purges, the waves. The it feels like the the, the kind of the knee-jerk reactions of a crumbling regime. Uh, it, it's, it's just ridiculous. It's like it's, you know, the, it doesn't make sense even from a customer service perspective. It's just, just essentially purging, you know, like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, it feels like that's, that's a good sign. I don't know. Is it a good uh, sign?
1: Uh, uh, I think it is a good sign. My opinion is that, and obviously a lot of people disagree with me on this, but I'm a history guy. My opinion is that the regime is extremely fragile. And I don't think this idea of a technological dystopia where the bad people sit on us for the next five hundred years has any validity whatsoever. This is, you know, I was discussing, as you know, with on a podcast with Michael Anton the other day, and this is this is his idea uh, that if conservatives of whatever stripe are even remotely correct, the regime is doomed in the relatively near future. Now, it could be that conservatives or right-wing people are just completely wrong. And the future is you know a technological hell combination of 1984 and Brave New World forever, but well, probably not. I'm putting, my, I'm putting my money against that. So I think the next major challenge to the regime, external challenge, will almost certainly knock over, in essence, the entire liberal democratic order. We'll see. I could be wrong. I was wrong
0: before once, once or twice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this sounds uh, kind of dystopian and hopeful at the same time. Obviously, because we're a, a bit in this, we're in the same camp, but uh, it, it does kind of sound um, a bit, you know, scary because this is kind of why people don't want to dig too deep into the post-liberal idea because it is just so far from the known waters and it's just so exotic and weird and all the alternatives sound so scary and they're all they all harken back to things that have weird connotations like you know the medieval connotations mm-hmm. that you know
1: <laughs> i like medieval my favorite period of history not period, not favorite in the sense that i necessarily want to live there though in many ways i think that is would be much better than people think but my favorite in terms of interest in reading about is medieval history. And most people have no conception of what medieval life was really like. I actually have a uh, book review of a classic book, Life in a Medieval City, by a husband and wife couple called Gies or Gies. I think I I did this a couple of years ago. But Life in a Medieval City was actually pretty good. Medieval, Western European medieval society was basically nothing like you see it in the movies. And it wasn't like Braveheart. And you you have all these myths surrounding it. So, I think that's mostly a question of we've been propagandized into thinking by in essence by the Enlightenment and by various Enlightenment thinkers uh, into thinking two things, but the past was dreadful and that progress in the sense of technological or scientific progress is connected in some way to the Enlightenment, to the idea of emancipation being the prime political goal of human life. Both those things are completely false. The past was actually pretty good and you could and in, in my imagining, a future society that throws overboard essentially all elements of the Enlightenment and uh, maintains the good parts of the modern world, what I like to call the high middle ages with rockets. So, you know, that's what we need. And so I think that's feasible. But we've been propagandized into thinking that the bad things of modernity, which our enemies think are the good things of modernity, go along with and are necessarily partnered with what I think are the good things of modernity. I think those things can be split and will be split, whether we like it or not. So we can be scared or we can not be scared, but it's coming for us regardless and for our children. So sticking our heads in the sand isn't going to be really useful.
0: Yeah. So uh, the Enlightenment wasn't the the moment where they invented reason, was it? Yeah. No.
1: Yeah. Not at all. So I write on this fairly extensively, but the the idea reason. I, I listened to to your uh, your podcast with Darren Beatty the other day, and uh, unlike Beatty, I know nothing about Heidegger and cannot go on a great length about philosophy and will not go on a great length about philosophy. Though that was very interesting. So, but in short, reason obviously has nothing whatsoever to do with the Enlightenment having begun in the West. You know, it, 2,500 years before, and my bigger focus rather than reason, since I don't really do philosophy because I regard myself as unqualified, it, the scientific approach to reason and the subset of reason that relates to the development of scientific technology it antedated the or predated, um, it predated, I can't even get my vocabulary right, predated the enlightenment by a couple hundred years. It was a function of Western Europe uh, largely mediated by the church. So the exact opposite of what children are taught in, in schools today, much of which is the result of enlightenment propagandists combined with uh, anti-Catholic propagandists, which has, is not exactly the same thing, but has a heavy overlap. So none of these things are necessary. We can throw the enlightenment out entirely, forget it ever happened, and live happily ever after, or at least as happily as human beings can ever live.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's that's one of those, you know, hard, very hard to swallow pills for the, uh, you know, the the, the rationalist, uh, neo liberal, yeah, whatever you want to call it, you know, the, the the person of the, you know, the smart person of today. It's 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 a it's a hard, it's not a hardly digestible idea, but yeah.
1: Wasn't it you who I think it was one of your podcasts just the other day where you were saying how uh, the new atheists being a new atheist is low status now um and so if the new atheists become low status we just need to extend that uh that principle to everybody who believes in enlightenment and make them all low status and have the uh have the uh, people who believe in a uh different future be the high status people status matters right and one of my one of my uh, overriding principles which i probably Say too much is how terrible our current ruling class is. you just get but every society has a ruling class. We just get rid of the existing ruling class and have a new set of high status people who produce a different society. It sounds simple, but it devils in the details, but that 's the theory right
0: yeah, this is kind of you know the, the the great man of history branch of of how how things develop, and I, I think i 'm partial to that as well. I think. It's it's surprising how you know a handful of people can can move the course. Wasn't that um, there's a quote by, by Napoleon about him him finding the the, the crown of uh, of France lying in the street and picking it up with a sword, you know yes. may, maybe that's that's the next
1: uh, the next step for, for someone. Well, I'm putting my money on that. Not literally. I'm not really a betting guy. I go to Vegas rarely, and when I do, I play nickel slots or something like that. But if if, if I was a betting guy, uh, I would place my bets on that kind of scenario. And, the, and it's interesting, I'm reading a book right now on the period uh, between the end of the French Revolution and Napoleon's accession to power. So basically the, what they call the directory, uh, period before Napoleon took over, which has shockingly few books on it. I had to like dig really hard to find books on it because I think that moment when what is to be done after a, a left wing ascendancy is defeated and to change from that governance system to something new is actually very instructive so if you're uh if you're into that uh, wait a couple months and you'll you'll see see my thoughts on that uh, on, on my site. <laughs>
0: Yeah, for sure. I think it's uh, there's very few moments in history that are quite comparable to, to the, the current one or the one that we're expecting now with, with bated breath. Mm-hmm. So um, and I, I want to go a little bit deeper into post-liberalism because like I said uh, you are you are you're the main man to, to see for this type of uh, this type of thinking. Uh, and you have kind of you've kind of had a uh, built a structure around it. So you kind of have these three branches of, of, of post-liberalism, one of which you identify with a bit closer and two of which, which you don't, don't, not at all. So the first one is people who still endorse the Enlightenment, who think that, you know, the American project went off the rails, you know, a bit a bit later down the line. It wasn't straight at the at the moment of enlightenment. Um, then there is the, the very familiar to probably many of my audience the, the kind of dark enlightenment near reaction direction, kind of this tech atheist accelerationist Type uh, type thinking, um, and then there is one uh, strain of it that uh, I think you've you've given it the name the the Augustin strain, um, and they they take kind of a, a dim view of democracy, but um, are either ambivalent or hostile about the Enlightenment, but they're not necessarily hostile to religion, or they're not atheists, or you know Is this a, a good summary?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I mean, my my thoughts on that are the is particularly on the Augustan uh, I'm a power guy. I'm not really a philosophy guy. Philosophy is important in the sense that uh, it can inform people's decisions. But a lot of people spend entirely too much time on philosophy, whether that's political philosophy or or any kind of philosophy. And one thing a lot of people don't realize is that we think of ancient Greek philosophers as men who were highly honored in their own society. And that, in fact, was not the case. Philosophy was looked down on and not just Socrates and his supposed corruption of Athenian youth but in general philosophers were not honored in in their own time because most societies are busy getting on with the business of life not thinking great thoughts that doesn't mean there's not a role for great thoughts but I'm in the business of figuring out what the tools and outline of a future society that permits human flourishing are and there's a role for thinking about that but Functionally, a society that is new or reborn or renewed has to be an organic thing. If the past 150 years or all the way back to the French Revolution, say, have taught us anything, it's that ideologically based societies where you think in your mind what the society should look like and attempt to implement that in practice are a disaster on every level and always are and always will be. So you have to accept that a society is organic and you have to accept that and act on it in the sense of setting up structures that allow that to happen in a way that has some amount of guidance because libertarianism is a dead end, complete libertarianism, but without having any of the other, you don't want to tyranny, obviously, and this is a, now I'm sounding like a political philosopher again. So my classic example of this, though there's others, is the Augustan age, which is people like Anton focuses on the term of Caesarism, the ending of the Roman Republic, but Augustus was the one who built the new society, a new thing for a new time, informed by the wisdom of the old. And he had luck and he was an interesting personality, and nothing succeeds like success. If he had been a big disaster, we would remember him differently. But it shows that it can be done. You can uh, take a society that is in turmoil, that has real problems, and you can create a society that works for a lengthy period of time. Uh, Obviously our society that is similar, if someone took up the Napoleonic challenge of picking up the crown with his sword, uh, you have a lot of risks, it could be disastrous, but you could also end up with if it was properly done and a variety of things broke our way with a renewed Western society. And since one of my premises is that essentially the only good things that have ever been accomplished broadly speaking for humanity, for mankind, have been done by the West, all other civilizations either being uh, of limited accomplishment or stagnancy, the, it has to be done in the West. And so uh, I, what I reject is the, as I say, the philosophy of the Enlightenment in general. So I'm a part company to a certain degree with uh, the Straussians and so on. And we had a whole discussion about that earlier. And then the dark enlightenment types, you know, uh, I have a fairly well trafficked, actually very heavily trafficked piece attacking Curtis Yarvin. (laughs) I like, I like Curtis Yarvin. I think he's interesting. Uh, I have a very number of very specific criticisms, which I won't, won't narrate here. But, but the single thing is that you can't view human beings instrumentally. Everything has to be organic. And if you view human beings as a clay that you can manipulate in order to create a specific kind of society or clay that you can let run free and will self-organize to create some wonderful society or clay that you can technologically manipulate in some transhumanist way to create some that will be different and wonderful for no obvious reason. Those things are all dead ends. In many ways with humanity, there is no thing new under the sun and you have to take what it is set up the right structures, and hope it works out. There you go. Hope an asteroid doesn't hit us, and, and one of the reasons I'm also very big on space exploration, That that's a different topic. So my Augustan age will include uh, interstellar, well interstellarism, uh, <laughs> is very hopeful and uh, aspirational, intrasolar, intrasolar exp- exploration
0: yeah that's 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 an interesting side to it i think maybe it's i've i'm really trying to get on the level where this stuff is interesting to me but i think i'm i think i'm just like too too female brained even with with everything space. that's gone wrong space you mean yeah i'm just
1: does not uh, compute <laughs> it's funny you know, i run into a lot of people who 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 say that that space doesn't compute doesn't have any attraction and then you also have people who are that's simply stupid simply because every environment outside of Earth is so challenging that it's the, the chances of us being able to do anything, at least sending manned uh, spacecraft anywhere or colonizing Mars or what have you, is low. And all that's probably true, but that is, first of all, it doesn't preclude things like unmanned exploration, uh, asteroid mining and so on. And a society needs stretch goals. And no stretch goals, there are many, many problems, even aside from the Enlightenment with today's societies. We don't have stretch goals. We don't have any children. Everybody's old. Everybody's rich. Everybody's complacent, but unhappy and alienated. I don't really have great solutions for those things. But I do think that giving society a stretch goal, namely, space exploration, space, the conquest of space, is likely given historical analogues to yield very rich dividends for the society. And failing to have a stretch goal leads to complacency and stagnation.
0: Isn't that a little bit trying to, to mold the, the putty of humanity, you know, if, you've, if you impose the stretch goal of, uh, of society?
1: No, because you only have a percentage of the people who act towards the stretch goal. The rest of the people Benefit from it either materially, in the sense of they get the, the fruits of whatever the people who are doing the exploration uh, do, or they benefit from it psychically. They see that as a society they're bound together by this common achievement. Right now, we have no common. I mean, seriously, if you think about it, in the West at least, there's no commonality. There's no uh, sense. You see, for example, with the the COVID these, in America at least, you see these signs, we're all in this together, which of course is the exact opposite of the truth. We're not at all all in this together for any number of reasons, but there's nothing that we're all in together nowadays. We're all in this together in the sense that we, in America, we we live in this country, but you have very little commonality and you have no coherent vision of the good or of what the society should accomplish. Without that, the society is going to fail. So it doesn't have to be the conquest of space, I mean, I don't know. It could be digging to the core of the earth, like that movie twenty years ago. What was that called? The Core, where they send the ship to the, the middle of the earth. I, you know, it could be something like that. But uh, but you have to have some common goal.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's the the challenge of the the common part of it. I think is is kind of. You know, lays heavy on me as well, because you know it's the the idea that you know you you have to get people excited about it. I talk to you know tech bros and people obsessed with aliens and space, and I still <laughs> am not excited about space. So I'm like, I don't know. I, I get I get easily excited, about how how to communicate the 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 vision of the future?
1: Well, I, I think sadly, that's a second order problem because we have to get through the existing set of problems and defenestrate our current ruling class. Well, that's exciting. (laughs) Right. So that'll be exciting for us all and probably far more exciting than we really want. What that defenestration looks like, uh, I I don't know. Um, My kind of current thinking tends to revolve around our best case scenario is a split of the country. Um, But we'll see. Again, it's very fragile and... as with so many of these things, nothing can be predicted in advance. But once we're through that, what Toynbee would have called the time of troubles, uh, which is inevitable in every civilization, we'll see where it goes from there.
0: Yeah, but the country is arguably already already splitting um, with essentially you know mass migrations of different types of people from one corner to the other you know poor poor boise poor salt lake city poor i don't know <laughs> phoenix um austin, austin. austin. Um, austin's gone already that's we're scratching it,
1: it it is splitting but the central government and ruling class is not giving up any of its power quite the contrary so it doesn't matter if a bunch of people sort themselves into blocks so that you have more red states and more blue states, because the ruling class dominates all through its hold on various levers of power. And so the breaking of that hold is the thing that's necessary. And by breaking, I don't think that it makes any sense for people to go out and try to break that hold. Rebellion is typically a complete waste of time, and it's definitely a waste of time now. So, I don't think people should go out and, and, and rebel. But eventually, in the nature of things, the hold on these levers of power is going to crumble. And then, back, again, back to Napoleon and picking up the crown, someone will pick up that crown.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, you think kind of the, the avenue is going to be kind of the emperor's new clothes, just a critical mass of people realizing that you know, it's, a, it's a sham. So, no, no need for January 6th redos
1: and, yes. and, and feeding no, the beast. No. Well, I was a big fan of January 6th, and I think it was an excellent event, but I don't think it's an excellent event in the sense of useful for accomplishing its end goals. It's useful for demonstrating the will of the people and that the people can, in fact, act together. But you don't need to do that again. And of course, the state is looking out for that and is eager to use that in its propaganda campaigns and, and crush people and so on. So it, the, as with anything, these things will become evident almost certainly from some kind of external shock. Uh, Again, if I was a betting man, uh, I would bet on economic collapse. Uh, This is, of course, uh, hardly something that's original, that the government's printing so much money and uh, so much of the economy is completely fake that it seems inevitable that eventually there'll be a comeuppance and you can bear a comeuppance when your society is strong and resilient, but you cannot bear a comeuppance when it's not and so you look at historical examples like the 1923 German hyperinflation which is different in many ways obviously but that was very tough in germany but you know the germans of the 1920s or have a lot more resiliency than the americans of the 2020s um they just do and so in a similar situation here, everything would, I, I think, just just fall apart. And I'm sorry to make this make all my, all my conversation makes me sound like a complete doomer, which which I'm not. Uh, I I I think I'm extremely optimistic. I, I regard doom as a necessary step and a temporary step on the road to future success. So I'm not a sort of a guy on the right who's been getting a lot of attention lately. As a guy, Paul Kingsnorth, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a I think he's a Welshman but he's in, in the UK somewhere. is uh, a former Wiccan priest who has now become Orthodox, but is uh, part of something called the Dark Mountain Project. In fact, maybe you should reach out to this guy. So he, he's pushing this idea that we're gonna have a complete and total collapse back to in essence, Bronze Age, standards, which I don't think any of that is, is even remotely possible, but he's, he's a very interesting guy. Uh, if you read, do you ever read First Things, which is a, a uh, publication here? He has an article on uh, in the most recent uh, edition, which is very much worth, worth reading on his his kind of journey and his, his thoughts about the future. I think he would fit right into some of your thinking. Oh, really? Uh-oh. <laughs> so <laughs> so good, good. Paul Kingsnorth is the name. He's, okay. he's quite good.
0: Are, okay. well, my point is,
1: I, I don't think I see a bright and shining future for humanity, and I am here to help us get there. And in my own small way, I, I, I'm not the doomer. I don't think we're all going to go Mad Max and sit around burning trash in barrels and warming our hands over it for the next 600 years. Right? It, it, I think people are resilient. Ultimately, our society has no resiliency, but people are resilient and it, with the right uh Actions we can get to where we want to go. Yeah, and
0: I, you know, p- power pours a vacuum. I don't expect uh, you know Mad Max to happen just because it's completely against human nature. You know, one one person will will show
1: up to with a sword to find the crown somewhere in the in the foothills yeah. of. But people people just won't abide anarchy. I mean, they'll always organize on, on a local level. So I mean, I've, I, like everybody, dystopian movies are are fun, um, though uh, the. Uh, the most recent Mad Max movie was was terrible, but uh, I grew up in the original Mad Max movies when Mel Gibson was young. And so, uh, you know, I, I much prefer those, but I don't think they're, they're realistic because there's, I mean, there's no, no example in human history of any kind of society like that
0: yeah so i i want to go back to the 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 post-liberal moment i know you've you've been chatting about these people have you chat to some of these people i want to just ask you okay what like for example michael anton he's probably one of the the more you know convincing and and out there uh relatively post-liberal he's kind of straddling the line a little bit like Mm -hmm. what what does he get wrong you know what 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 would be your main bone to pick with him
1: sure uh my disagreement with Anton is that I think the current system is doomed and he thinks the current system is at least potentially redeemable. And I don't think, I won't presume to speak for for Anton, of course, but I think he might or might not be certain in that. But I just regard everything as that happened politically now as shadow play. It doesn't matter at some level. It's interesting, and we talk about it, and people talk about it on Twitter, which I try to stay off. I'm on Twitter occasionally, but I absolutely refuse to put Twitter on my phone, because that way way lies madness. So I'll I'll only do Twitter on a desktop. So um, it's all shadow play. It doesn't really matter that Dementia Joe is president, because it could be anybody, it doesn't matter if Dementia Joe goes into the long-term care home and you know, Harris becomes president. It doesn't really matter if Trump is president. None of this matters, it's a shadow play. And so if you're Anton, my guess is, and he spends, has written his book, The Stakes, which is excellent, analyzes the future, but it analyzes through, through the prism of current structures. And I think current structures are back to, uh, what did you say about uh, earlier, I guess it was not, we're not recording about ants, eating the wood or termites eating the wood, right? So the current system is basically this termite riddled hell that doesn't really matter. And so um, uh, my guess is that Anton, Anton, or my opinion is that what Anton gets wrong is that uh, there's any point in really putting effort into reforming the current structures and systems. It, do- it doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything politically because first of all, on the local level, there's some benefit to being involved and uh, in, in pushing back against uh, against your enemies, the left, what have you. And it's also important to organize locally because if you do local political organizing, you're creating structures that are useful in the future. But I'm not going to spend a bunch of time agonizing about who becomes president in 2024. This is just doesn't matter. Who doesn't, Tucker Carlson becomes president. I mean, as we all, yes, it's true that Tucker Carlson is more disciplined than Trump and would probably pick better advisors, but he wouldn't be able to do anything either because he doesn't control the levers of power. I mean, everybody knows this This is not news. And so uh, wasting one's time on national politics has a certain degree of enjoyment, has a certain degree of pull as what I would call a rear guard action. I mean, if your enemies are after you and want to punish you, pushing back against them it seems like it's something you not only should do but have to do, and that's probably true at some level if you're being actually attacked. But most people, I think, should simply ignore national politics. I mean, I, I think in, in my Augustan society, almost everybody should ignore politics. But in the present moment, national political action just doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. And so again, if, if that's why Park Company with some other people on the right who think that there's some value to working hard at Current electoral politics,
0: yeah, and that puts you squarely in the the Yarvin camp.
1: <laughs> what, it, it, do- it does. <laughs> what's uh, that, what's that your bone it? to pick with him? Well, yeah, I have <laughs> <laughs> I have about twenty five thousand words uh, that uh, about that. Um, I think a lot of Yarvin's thought is very interesting. I disagree with him on, as I say, the instrumentalist view of humans. I disagree with him on a lot of his technical things. I think a lot of his history is simply wrong. I think a lot of his, uh, his, his analysis of corporate activity, his idea for new kinds of corporate forms of government don't make any sense. And, uh, but I think my biggest single uh, complaint, again, I, I hesitate because I, I, I like Yarvin. I think he's very interesting. I think he's very valuable. I think spending your time fighting among post liberals isn't a useful thing to do, and I don't want to be known as the the anti-Yarvin guy because I'd rather have Yarvin than than almost anybody else on the left, certainly. But um, I think my biggest single objection is that his he would completely deny this, but I think his view of politics is not based on the reality of human nature. He has an ideological view. Of how uh, things should be structured. Again, he would completely deny this. But my basic point in my very lengthy piece is that he doesn't see the reality of human beings, and he doesn't organize around that reality, rather the reverse.
0: Okay. And what what what's kind of the 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 point that he doesn't get about human nature? What what is it about the human animal I, that is uh, foreign to to it, Curtis? It, it,
1: well, I, it's been a couple of years since I, I wrote the piece, so I'd have to go back and, and refresh my recollection. But the he's, whenever he talks about uh, people and he talks about history, he tends to cherry pick episodes from history. And I I, I don't have one at hand, so you have to forgive me. But he tends to cherry pick episodes that are designed to show that people act in a way that Curtis Yarvin has already decided fits in with what he thinks his program should be, rather than going through all of history and seeing how people act, and from that deriving what the structures of his future society should be. It's very abstract and then uses examples, which are frequently simply wrong, inaccurate in one way or another, about, uh, about that in order to support his very interesting Theoretical concepts. It's not organic. And that's in part what I mean by he has an instrumentalist view of human beings. My opinion is that in, in his mind, people are human beings are little counters to be fit into a, a larger structure uh, that is created in the abstract. And that is the fundamental failing of most political philosophers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. I can, I can understand that. I mean, I think maybe that's why he, he was so engaging for a lot of readers of the blog, because he has a, um, a way of picking out. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. he's very valuable. I mean, I, I think everyone should read Curtis Yarvin, And you should also read my, my piece on him, because why not? <laughs> but, but, but I mean, I, you, you can do a lot worse. And he has a substack. Uh, which is a uh, Gray Mirror or something, which is really good. I mean, yeah, this is I'm not. This is not bash Curtis Yarvin. I, 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 in the in the new Augustan age, uh, Curtis Yarvin will have an honored position uh, as you know court philosopher or something.
0: Like <laughs> I, I completely agree because you know a, a lot of the pushback that I get as well when talking about these things is that oh, this is. You know how how can you afford to be talking about these things if you don't you're not coming to the table with a completed uh you know philosophical and political formula that you should present so that it can be implemented tomorrow uh, in an easy way so that we can just slot into this new regime form and i'm like're we're, we're, I'm, I'm I'm one of these people just you know stumbling in the dark, you know reading books from a hundred years ago about people that you know they're, they're they're out of print just to kind of get my mind around what this can even be um one second yeah. yeah good so yeah um so that's that's a, a bit you know the fact that we're we're not necessarily bickering but you know disagreeing about some things and then kind of the post-liberal field i think it's absolutely natural and it's, it's healthy and i think even even curtis probably you know supports it because i'm sure he likes the fact that a lot of more a lot more people are thinking about this you know it, it lifts his star as much as everyone else's so i think it's, uh,
1: it's- absolutely i mean, here the future will be revealed to us by definition, and being informed by various lines of thought is helpful in reacting appropriately to what the future holds. Because most of the people in the modern society are sedated. This is again like James Poulos. You you can listen to Poulos and he talks about this much more eloquently than I could talk about it. The the sedation um, that the, the modern world price to offer people is extremely damaging. And so anything where you can step outside of that and say, I'm not gonna spend my time playing video games or watching porn, but instead I'm gonna think about what X, Y, or Z has to say, that's what's gonna make a decent future possible. People breaking out of their shells. I mean, I, I, I try to stay away from the the matrix analogies, but it is very matrixy, right? You break out break out of that unreality into a, into a new reality. And what you need is people who will, will help wherever people are along that stage. I mean, I used to be a a zombie Reaganite. I'm not a zombie Reaganite anymore. I didn't, that wasn't just because I woke up. It's because I read other people who were instrumental in, in going down that path.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, and um, I, I it it does feel to me like one of maybe the the major obstacles, you know, that that Poulos highlights is this. Uh, I think I think Helen Andrews calls it, you know, limbic capitalism. You know, this mm-hmm. algorithmic capitalism. It really is very effective, um, and it's um, and it is it is very lulling. It's really really like a, a sedative. I mean, how what what's the critical mass of people that you need to actually turn the ship around if everyone's just you know being uh, Fed by the machine.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I went to the University of Chicago, which is all econ law and economics and, and cost benefit analysis and so on. So, th- the answer is that it depends on the cost benefit ratio. And right now, where people live in the pod, again, a futurism, uh, li- they live in the pod and they 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 but they have jobs. They eat the bugs. They live in the pod. They watch the porn. They 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 don't see a lot of benefit to them to doing anything else, and they don't see a lot of costs to their current existence. Though I would argue that that existence has huge costs, but your average person probably doesn't think that. That's not going to go on forever because it was Ben Stein famously said, if something can't go on forever, it won't. So Eventually, the cost-benefit analysis will change. It's at that point that people start to wake up. And This is true for, for any society throughout history. People have inertia, complacency, and then one day they wake up, and everything's different. Uh, i'm re- I'm reading right now a book called Fifth Sun about a revisionist history of the Aztecs. Um, and so the the Aztecs are the classic example of this, and you see this in movies all the time. The Aztecs are on top of the world, though it is also true. they only took over the area they were occupying like one hundred years before Cortez arrived. And then one day the Europeans arrive, and everything goes to hell for them. That's what happens to every society. And so eventually people will wake up. And limbic capitalism depends upon not having any countervailing force. And so when there's a countervailing force, whether that's people can't feed their children or the asteroid has you know, darkened the sky and um, I mean, there's no food, whatever. Limbic capitalism is a fragile thing that's very weak and only exists because people and only can succeed because people are complacent. As soon as people face challenges, as society faces challenges, these things are going to disappear. And Pulos I think is probably a bit more of a believer in strong AI and the algorithm. Uh, I think the algorithm, strong AI is completely insane, will never happen. The algorithm is, uh, I, the example I always use is YouTube subtitles. That is, here we are in, twenty what is this year? 2021, thank you. And, uh, and YouTube still can't sub, auto-generate subtitles and videos that are anything but you know, look like linear B, the Minoan script. You know, and so I mean, we hear all the time about how and Elon Musk, who I really like, uh, is, um, tells us how AI is gonna eat our lunch. AI is never gonna happen. It can't even do like algorithms. And so limbic capitalism exists in the sense that it, it, algorithms can feed us things on social media and so on, but it's never gonna get any better. And as our society decays, due to you know, excessive amounts of lack of focus on excellence and rather giving things to people on the basis of their identitarian characteristics, will accomplish less and less. We'll asymptotically approach approach, accomplishing nothing, or maybe negative, maybe asymptotic. We'll just cross the axis and we'll, we'll, we'll affirmatively destroy social capital and social accomplishment and scientific accomplishment. So um, I'm not worried about limbic capitalism keeping us all sedated forever because the challenges will arrive and then the party's on. I'm just I'm just waiting for the party to start.
0: <laughs> okay, that's that's uh interestingly a mix of, of of doomers and optimism which i think we've uh, we've come to expect of you um yeah I, I think i think you're you're right about that i think you know there, tyler Cowan always has this you know he's kind of the, the court philosopher at the moment uh you know the idea that there's going to just going to be these farms of people who are hooked up to you know stimulation machines and you know that's where we put the people who were born to be honest, not going to be very productive in the, <laughs> new, in the new symbol manipulation economy that we're building and, you know, that you have these these high-class high, high class people, you know, actually making making the robots that feed us all. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to think about that because that's, like like you said, you know, that involves the idea that it's going to be, you know, linear. You know, everything's going to continue on a linear path, and if we go down the road that we're already on, then, yeah, probably, I guess, you know, people are, you know...
1: Uh, uh, two things. I hate Tyler Cohen. Not personally. I've ne- never met him, but I-, I just think his everything he says is terrible. And so I have a couple of reviews just, you know, viciously slicing up some of his books. So, uh, And that's one of the ideas I, I object to, this idea that, w- that the robots are going to put us on the pods and we're going to be happy. But he-, he exemplifies, and I think you're exactly right, The my favorite quote, which I probably overuse and perhaps you've heard, or one of my favorite quotes that uh, George Orwell wrote of James Burnham, uh, who wrote the managerial revolution, which is that Burnham's error is in always predicting the continuation of the thing that is happening. So you, you see this error everywhere. I mean, that was 1947. Yeah, maybe. but in this Orwell case, Burnham was right. <laughs> oh, well, Burnham was right about about you know, a large part of the managerial revolution. That's true, but. I don't think that he would look at what we see around and say that he predicted a linear line, uh, to that. He would, he would be proud of his prediction about the managerial class, but the continuation of the thing that is happening, I think, is an error that, that a huge number of people fall into. And so I solve that by my combination of doomerism and optimism. I do not predict the continuation of the thing that is happening, though I am somewhat, uh, I'm not overly bold in making predictions about what precisely the future will hold. I merely think it will be different and can be better.
0: Yeah, well, because you you also advocate for the idea that, you know, a new elite will rise. And I think like there there is kind of a spawning new elite that is already kind of throwing off the chains of limbic capitalism. And it's, you know, you can see this in like, you know, everyone's fasting in silicon valley you know they're all doing (laughs) spartan races they're torturing themselves in in ways that you know monks on the mountain at athos are you know doing occasionally and it's 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 a very different class of of leader you know they're not fat and happy they're 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 miserable (laughs) yeah
1: uh, i'm not sure that um i think the new elite will be largely have a high representation of people who used to be in silicon valley uh, but I could be wrong, and um, it's not. I'm not a Silicon Valley guy, though I, I know a fair amount of people there. So it's not clear to me what the current under the surface are. That is, it's it, on the surface, everyone has to kind of pay obeisance to the latest woke craziness. But it may well be that there's plenty of people under the surface who are who are uh, the elite in waiting. Um, I, I suspect that uh, at least there's there's some degree of truth to that. We'll find. I. Mean, Uh, that assumes of course California doesn't simply fall into the ocean and thus getting rid of everybody in California which would certainly be sad but uh, you know if that doesn't happen maybe they'll show up.
0: I think Silicon Valley is quite distributed you know it's more of a of a state of mind it's more of a tribe of people all around the world like we have a big contingent of Silicon Valley in London you know they're they're everywhere Um, and it is interesting, because, you know, being in the in this space, you know, you, you hear about people getting, you know, funding from X and doing that, and I think there's quite a contingent of people doing things under the radar that's uh, quite hopeful, and not just funding people, but like really, you know, supporting people in, in, in many ways, and there's a whole movement. I mean, Peter is the, the face of it, you know, as as much as he can mm-hmm. be, even though we never see him, but <laughs> at least we know of him, uh, but I think there's just quite a lot of people, you know, it. it it's gotten to the point where it's already starting to eat into into their existence uh and they're you know people being attacked for absolutely random you know you know cultural revolution reasons you know that they whatever pre- representation of trans people in their I don't not committee or something so it's um i think i think things are, are shifting in that way as well but where do you see this uh, elite being is there is this is there any geographic industry industry place where you know where you see things bubbling up a little bit more
1: well i'm in indiana which is not the hotbed of anything and so indiana is, is smack dab more or less in the, in the middle of the country and the closest relevant city is is chicago i live near indianapolis which is accurately called indiana no place and so um you know i lived in chicago for a long time i, I like chicago but I, I can't say that i'm connected to, I mean, I'm connected, obviously, to a variety of people, and I think you're you're entirely right that uh, that there's a lot of Silicon Valley's in many places, and the same thing is true for organizing among people broadly speaking on the right. So I think I suspect it's the case that the current geographic incarnation at the United States is not long for this world, and that it's more likely to have some set of successor nations, and obviously the trope among most people is that the coasts will split off and then some center of the country will form a, could potentially form a, a new nation. So I have no idea where the new elite is going to come from. I think in a large part that depends upon how we get from here to there. If we get from here to there because an asteroid hit us and killed 90% of the people, well that's going to be a lot different than if we get from here to there through some other uh, kind of set of troubles. So. I think in the nature of things, it's kind of like you were saying about anarchy. People won't abide anarchy. People will, in any kind of society where there's opportunity, uh, where they are allowed to, an elite will naturally form. And hopefully that's an elite based upon what those people can bring to that society rather than a purely extractive elite. History obviously has many examples of a purely extractive elite. We tend to focus, or at least I tend to focus on societies with successful and worthwhile elites. But there's many examples, counterexamples to that as well. So you we, we can't be too optimistic about the future. But uh, I think it will, it will be, be made manifest to us as it happens. And it's just a question of being prepared for that. Uh, the criticism that, that is obvious here, which I might as well address is that it, it's easy to say, well, it's all going to become clear. It's all going to become clear. The, the criticism is that you just refusing to take a position. But you can't really predict the future. I have, I just have a high degree of confidence the future uh, will coalesce in a way that is uh, likely to be much better than the future path we're on now.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and that kind of brings me to your, your own project, because you, you have a, um, a kind of a train of thought that's building, uh, I think it's called foundationalism, it's your own um, kind of post-liberal offshoot, and I'm curious, what, what are kind of the, the, the main principles, why, why is this different from, from what other people think? Right.
1: So I, I, I'm trying to compete with Curtis Yarvin on setting forth programs, I guess. So my foundationalism is, uh, and I have, and we'll probably shortly publish here, the, what I like to call the foundationalist manifesto, which makes it sound like a communist manifesto, which, which it's not, obviously. But it, it, what I'm trying to do is outline a set of principles that around which people can coalesce in order to build a successful society. And the idea is that this isn't restorationism. Now, I, I'm a big believer in that, and you see this a lot on the right, less on the post-liberal side, but it even exists there. Uh, you see people who are nostalgics. You see that your retrotopia, John Michael Greer. We're going to go back, and we're going to have Michael Lind talks about this too. We're going to have retroculture, and we're going to take go back to the past. I mean, it, I, I just can't abide that because it's it's totally unrealistic and fundamentally. What the principles of foundationalism are supposed to do is embody a realistic view of humanity, human nature, and history, and set forth a bunch of principles that, several, 12 to be precise, uh, principles that people can agree on and use to find other people who agree with them and act in concert to form a renewed society. So unlike the Communist Manifesto, which makes a bunch of claims about how how things specifically need to be different, and we need to remake and create a new type of man, we're not gonna create a new type of man. We're going to take what agree upon principles which are uh, reality-based, but which are antithetical in almost all cases to the current zeitgeist, to the enlightenment zeitgeist, to the zeitgeist of modernity, we can agree that much of modernity is just terrible and needs we need to have a new society based upon certain uh, founding principles so foundationalism is designed to create a foundation for a new society though in fairness i, I did not come up with the name myself i actually uh, sent put out a call <laughs> call for names on my on my site and, and and someone came up with that who i will not name because he probably doesn't want to be doxed but uh so uh um, but I, there is a specific person. So if foundationalism is ever like a, uh, a, uh, a multi-generational success, I'm sure that guy will want to be named and get a statue of himself for, 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 for name, naming, the, naming the program. So um, my goal is, the purpose of this isn't that I'm going to be the foundationalist king, that has a certain limited attraction, um, but the uh, that the this will provide a pattern for people to uh, work on forming a new and better society. Mm-hmm. So you said twelve principles. That's... Twelve principles. So I would, I, I have uh, <laughs> don't keep have to. Me, people keep yeah. asking me where my manifesto is, and the answer is it's basically written, but uh, uh, I, I have I have trouble. Um, it, I have about two million words, about five hundred pieces written on the blog, and many of them revolve around this. I don't want to repeat everything I say um and I want to make it digestible so uh, i have I have trouble kind of condensing it down in a way that's valuable and adequately uh covers the principles but i i i'm going if people keep asking me why I haven't published it, i'm going to publish it i'm also a little bit afraid people will think that it's going to be something. <laughs> new and wonderful, like, you know, here's this, I've discovered cold fusion, and here it is, people, I know you've been waiting. I mean, it, it, it's nothing I haven't said before. So I'm, I'm all, maybe that's, maybe uh, normally self-confidence is not something that I lack. Uh, but may, maybe I'm afraid that the people will look at it and spit and then quit visiting my site because I didn't provide something new and wonderful. But uh, I, for example, let's just take one random, uh, random principle of foundationalism, which is a reworking, and you see this in a bunch of my writings, and it, I think that uh, the modern approach in the West generally, in America specifically, to the roles of men and women is completely wrong. That is, you need to rework uh, sex roles to be something that is in accord with reality. And that, the specifics of that, you, know, you can go into different, different pieces, but one of the fundamental errors of the modern age is treating men and women as interchangeable. And so that, you can't run a competent society on that basis. And so that's one of the principles. And I go into that in various writings and I summarize it as one of the principles or pillars of foundationalism. Yeah,
0: so I think the, the kind of the, the innovation here is at least to me the idea that you're going to take a stand on questions of this matter because the, the 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 current ideal about relationships between men and women is that it's all in flux and it's all you know it's all progressing towards more freer ever more freer ever more harmonized relationships you know and we're going to get to the truth through the marketplace of ideas and we're going to have this positive friction where we all decide what's good and bad and um, and it's it's absolutely horrendous <laughs> like the result is is, is not what's what's right. So are these are these 12 principles essentially just places where you're going to take a stand and say, okay, this is what
1: we believe, you know, people. Yes, with this I group. think that's, that, that's a great, I mean, I had not thought of it in those terms, but that's a great way uh, of putting it. That is historically in America, conservatism has viewed itself as taking a stand. I mean, famously William Buckley, when he started National Review, talked about it taking a stand, athwart thwart history. That, of course, turned out to be completely false. Conservatism is a uh, modern American conservatism or mainstream conservatism has turned out to be uh, nothing at all useful. Uh, Yarvin is fond of quoting a guy named Dabney, who is a Confederate general. I can't remember the exact quote, but it's an excellent quote that basically uh, American conservatism is is the handmaiden of progressivism and merely chases after it, saying it should slow down a little bit. That, that doesn't do that. The the quote is excellent, but um, that's what American conservatism has turned into. So what you have to do is you have to take a stand and a new stand, one that's that's fundamentally completely countercultural because the current culture is terrible. So in order to not have a terrible culture, you have to take a stand on things that make a culture uh, not terrible.
0: Yeah, and and the the root of, of these principles is there any religious substructure to foundationalism? Is religion a part of it, or is it just a this is what it is? <laughs> Reli-
1: virtue is a part of it; is mm-hmm. an explicit part okay. of it. Um, generally speaking, religion is not a necessary part of it. Uh, I believe in. Uh, I think Christianity is awesome and should, is the true religion, and every and everybody should uh, should join it. But I don't rec- think I believe in what I call pluralism light which is, I think you should allow, uh, I think Christianity should probably be the established state religion, though I'm not necessarily hung up on that. Um, broadly speaking, uh, and you should have a, within certain parameters, you should have a, a high degree of, of toleration. Um, I would, you know, Execute the Satanists, kind of thing. Maybe not execute. Send them to an <laughs> offshore island. Uh, but so I, I, I don't, I don't believe in total freedom of religion. For example, a society that does not have commonality of virtue is doomed, and much of that virtue historically comes from religion. Even if, if, if people to some people or a significant number of people don't actually believe the religion, adherence to the the public adherence to a religion is something that is useful for virtue. And I don't mean to adopt the instrumentalist view of religion at all that some people adopt, but a, a society needs common things and a dominant religion is almost certainly one of those, but most definitely a dominant set of agreed upon virtues is one of those.
0: Yeah, there's just actually an, another strain of kind of post-liberal thinking in and, and integralism. And I'm curious what what your feeling about that about that direction is. To
1: Well, uh, <laughs> I, I reviewed uh what was the guy's name um The book about Louis the Ninth, King Louis the Ninth of France, um, before Church and State—that was the name of the book—which is basically a book about integralism, and it was very interesting from a historical matter. But I'm not Roman Catholic. Uh, I was originally Roman Catholic. I'm I'm Orthodox now, and um, I, I think that integralism is a interesting theory, but doesn't work in practice, and no one's buying what those people are selling. And so, and I, I have a very dim view of Adrian Vermuel, for example, aside from the fact he blocked me on Twitter for no apparent reason, apparently he blocks everybody on Twitter. So well, I don't really care. <laughs> it's just interesting to me because I'm not like super famous or anything. So I guess I, I rate being blocked by Adrian Vermeule. But, um, you know, Vermeule is is the biggest public proponent of integralism and he's a clown. And you can tell that by the fact that he never does anything that would get him in trouble with his masters, like going out on Harvard yard and protesting against abortion. And so he talks about integralism, but basically integralism is shadow play because nobody's buying what those people are selling. And in case they haven't checked, the current Pope isn't even buying what they're selling. So you'd have to <laughs> have an entirely new Catholic church in order to, uh, to have integralism. If you, if you think of integralism as a broader uh, more broadly viewed, not just Roman Catholicism, but rather having the church govern the state, that also tends to work out poorly. I'm more in favor of Caesaropapism, where there is a close relationship between the government and, uh, the, and religious uh, leaders, and they act in concert. But I think in a state the secular authority needs to be the the ultimate authority over secular matters and therefore integralism isn't likely to work in any in any meaningful way
0: yeah it's uh it does does seem to me like uh kind of the the the, it it is pretty pretty fringe you know i mean i i'm just thinking you know I'm, i'm 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 catholic i'm not very Catholic, I'm not that Catholic, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm, you know, kind of from a, from almost like you know, a functional perspective. I'd, you know, I'd be like, yeah, it was, it, it, I would probably adhere to an integral state rather than have whatever is coming on down the pipeline but it is like like you said it's yeah it's not it's not mainstream it doesn't seem to be having any even even catholic circles any big traction
1: i should have ruled out entirely because as i say you can't predict the future so you could imagine for example a massive worldwide or western religious awakening where everyone suddenly is in fact buying what they're selling and Can they you really imagine they that? demand the demand well, no not really i can't but they, you could theoretically imagine, the people demanding an integral estate with Adrian, you know, tubby little Adrian Vermeule as their, uh, as their, as their new maximum leader. There's so much for this Haywood guy. He's, he's a terrible maximum leader. Let's have Adrian Vermeule. I, I don't think that's very likely.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's coming. But like you said, you know, the, the future is, is unpredictable. Um, you, you also mentioned... The, uh, you know, tran- transhumanism, you know, that you're not, uh, you're not uh, interested in transhumanism or you think it's absolutely nuts. Uh, you know, is- isn't the singularity upon us? You know, how, uh, how should we navigate the, the fear of, uh, of, of
1: that? the singularity is a silly fiction the silly singularity is never going to happen nothing approaching the singularity is ever going to happen strong ai is a crock autonomous cars are not coming um you know, it, none of this stuff is going to happen Th- these things are all just fantasies and uh, and they're fantasies in part because people don't want to face reality and part because people get money out of them it's partially it's a grift uh, i I've been, I've been paying attention for 30 years to this stuff and ray kurzweil 20 years ago was telling me how all All of us by 2008, we're gonna upload our brains, and so I mean, all this stuff is silly. And I was thinking the other day about you probably don't remember this, but the entire American presidential campaign in 2004 was run around how bad Republicans were preventing stem cell research from curing everything that ailed us. And stem cells, of course, have done nothing at all in the past 20 years. And maybe they will, maybe they won't have some therapeutic value down the road. But I realized. Actually, just the other day, I was sitting around thinking for some reason that why, in two thousand and four that happened? It's because the baby boomers, the worst generation in human history, were right at that moment reaching the point where everything was starting to break, and they wanted to be sold this fantasy that they could live forever through this new magical thing called stem cells. and then if that failed, then they could upload their brains because Ray Kurzweil told them that. and yeah, it, no, it, there's no evidence any of these things are going anywhere. I mean, I, I sure I could be wrong, but it, these things are all fantasies. It's like, it's like talking about how uh, I have a gnome who lives under the stairs who you know, cleans my toenails. I mean, I can say that, but it's not true. I don't have a gnome who lives under the stairs. I clean my own toenails. And I, it just doesn't make any sense to say anything else. And so uh, the I really get, as you can tell, worked up about people who predict the singularity because it's just, it's just an insane idea with no evidence whatsoever in support of it and it's a way for people to avoid having to deal with the reality of the society we have the reality of human nature and that we all need to muddle through this together rather than hoping we're all going to be uploaded in some you know awesome pan consciousness not that i'm worked up or anything (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah (laughs) it's um i feel like it, it, it does appeal to a certain type of you know uh tech person, like very high uh, in, you know, un- uncoupling and someone who can actually imagine themselves as, you know, like a homunculus driving a, a-, a skin suit. <laughs> um, and- yeah. Yeah it just it, to me to me that's kind of where i drifted that that's kind of my inflection point with with post liberalism you know when i realized like you know that the conception of the individual in in you know just the rational individual is completely has absolutely no bearing with with reality the idea that you're just you know there behind your eyes making decisions being smart about things uh, you're not one you're not the one making decisions too you're not being very smart about things <laughs> and so you know anything from the weather to like uh, you know stubbing your your toe is going to completely alter your relationship to rationality so uh, yeah that's kind of also where my departure point is from transhumanism i'm like yeah this (laughs) whatever this storm of of you know feelings and hormones is that you know happening and manifesting right now it's not uploadable it's not even comprehensible and we're not going to get it well however much we try to to codify it or whatever and even if we will Upload it. It's not going to be me. It's going to be exactly. I mean,
1: this is this is like the famous argument in in Star Trek. If you're transported, is it really you? But yeah, you know, it's not you. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm a believer that Star Trek transporter kills people and then creates new people. But uh, leaving that aside, even if we, as you say, we, even if we could upload ourselves, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be real. I mean, this is actually an interesting theological thing. Not to go, not to take a complete detour, but you know standard Nicene Creed Christianity holds that uh, the resurrection of the body, that is, the body is an integral part of us as humans. And so divorcing the Gnostic idea that we're really our pure spirit weighed down by these these flesh skins uh, is actually completely anti-human. And that's what you see in these Silicon Valley transhumanist types. They believe they believe that these things can be done, that would destroy our humanity. But perhaps more importantly, it's never going to happen. I and mean, there's just no evidence any of these things are even remotely possible. I mean, we can't, we can't, it, it, this, I, I did a review of uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer uh, last year, in which I railed about this, that we're promised all of these technological changes, and, and and they don't happen. And that's a distraction. I mean, I'm a big fan of certain forms of technology. I think you can advance certain forms of technology, but I don't think there are, all technology is not the same. Some technologies just are never going to happen, and those primarily relate to the ones that revolve around intelligence. So uh, I could be wrong, as I keep saying, that should be my catchphrase for this for this interview, but there's no nothing to suggest whatsoever that we're making any progress towards duplicating intelligence so we should simply focus on taking humans as they are and making accomplishments with that rather than chasing these fantasies about how we're going to create new intelligences or we're all going to live forever or what have you
0: I, I i keep hearing this um this this argument about you know es- essentially gnosticism being the beast that we're fighting you know i think you know Sorobamari makes it in his new book um um there's uh Huapulos talks about this all the time and in a way I think it's, it's, it's quite plausible you know the idea that you know we the, the body is uh, is 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 kind of toxic and you know the, the idea that you kind of have to transcend the, the human world and it's essentially kind of historicism it's it's you know it's hegelianism in a religious mm-hmm. frame and and that's kind of it feels like an animating force it feels like the presumption of modernity that this is you know you have to overcome the body and you have to just uh, you know we're going Going to transcend, you know, the rapture is coming, but it's not going to be a religious rapture, it's going to be <laughs> done through AI or I don't know, the, the singularity.
1: I mean, even if you could do that, the one of the or perhaps the fundamental modern societal problem is atomization and alienation. Again, this is not news or, or original to me, but if you could engage in some kind of gnostic implementation where people supersede their bodies, you would. It seems to me obvious that you would simply have more atomization and alienation rather than happiness for your disembodied or transhumanist people they would simply feel alienated and it would be it'd be like waking up in some ways you wake up in a sensory deprivation tank and there you are i mean that's just terrible why would you do that i mean i understand that you wouldn't really be in a sensory deprivation tank but you'd have that feeling of disconnectedness simply because people are uh, not, uh, you know, are the, the sum of their spirit and their body. And I understand that the Gnostic heresy is, of course, the probably the oldest Christian heresy, and it has must have a lot of visceral appeal to people. This idea of transcending themselves, but it doesn't seem to me that it bears holds up under any significant amount of thought. If you think about it a little bit, it obviously, other than the immortality aspect, which I understand why people want, I don't see why you would want that.
0: Yeah, I think it's it appeals to a, a, a certain type of person who's already kind of maybe alienated, you know, kind of introverted, maybe more more techie type of person who can kind of imagine themselves a bit, you know, like a brain in a vat uh, and who sees maybe who sees absolution you know, from the alienation of this world into, you know, the world of hyper-stimulus, the world of video games, essentially, because that's what people imagine, you know, the upload yeah. is going to be this, this yeah. perfectly immersive video game where, you know, women give you attention, where... <laughs> well, um, that's,
1: that's a lot of it. I mean, you're, you, you're not a loser anymore, right, in the video game. And You're so Whoever you want to be, yeah. Adrian Vermeule is now you know ten feet tall and buff, rather than Tubby tubby little Pied Piper, as I called him one of one of my reviews. And I, so
0: um, I, I will uh, not stand for this infighting. I think Adrian's scheduled to come on the podcast, just saying. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, you
1: cut that part out. Um, no worries. The, no. On the, on the unblock, it's, it's subversive. It has
0: to. If, it has if, to. If,
1: in. if he unblocks me on Twitter, then not then not only will I be exposed to his his. Incredibly insightful takes again, uh, then I'll, I'll be nice to him. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I'll, I'll yeah. be nice to you. It's, it's so all good. No, no worries. I mean, you know,
0: this is this is a, a dissident podcast. We've got you know pirate radio <laughs> vibes. This is you know the the Howard Stern of the post-liberal left uh, slash right slash whatever
1: this is. So yeah, have, have you fun. ever heard the? Uh, I think it's John Hyatt, who's a uh, folk rock singer, has a song called Pirate Radio. You should go look it up. It's actually quite a good song
0: yeah i will I
1: <laughs> you can make it your intro music or something
0: oh nice <laughs> um yeah i mean i think this is this has kind of covered the main areas i wanted to ask you i also wanted to ask you about accelerationism but that uh, kind of falls pretty much into the in. yeah. neo-reaction thing and also the transhumanism thing. So we've kind of shot that out of the air. But then that leads me to, um, yeah, no, I want to ask you about The Demon in Democracy because that is the book that you talk about the most. You essentially talk about it almost every time you talk about it. yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious, like, what is, the, what is the main insight? Was that kind of your aha moment book or?
1: You know, probably. Uh, I read, uh, so this is Ryszard Legutko, who's a Polish philosopher slash parliamentarian. And he wrote the book, The Demon in Democracy, which I read, I was on a cruise ship, maybe early 2017 in the in the Caribbean, I, I the family I was on a, on a cruise ship. And I, I took that book along for some reason. And as I said in my review of it, this is the book that explains it all to you. And so uh, it, it's actually an excellent point. If you're going to start somewhere, I would start there. And uh, it's a short book. And if it started for me, it probably started arguably at least started there or at least came to full flower there. So Legutko describes why um, the nature of liberal democracy is poisonous in essence or contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction and he also explains or views it through the frame of why after the fall of communism the uh, rather than uh, communists becoming sidelined, communists slotted right into the new system of liberal democracy, and that the people of Central and Eastern Europe didn't get what they wanted, but they rather got a blend of the common elements of communism and liberal democracy. uh, What Ligutko calls in the phrase I typically quote, coercion to freedom, which is that you uh, will have total freedom to do what you want as long as that fits in within the demands for emancipation that are inherent in liberal democracy and the Enlightenment program. Uh, he doesn't use this phrase, but you, it's also emblem, emblematized, that's not a word, but emblematized by the phrase you see sometimes I can tolerate anything but intolerance. So the, the idea that uh, you can believe whatever you want as long as it comports with the Poisonance, Poisonous Doctrines of the Enlightenment and Liberal Democracy. I have a pretty good review of it. The book is only like 150 pages. Everybody should read it. He's come out with a book since, which I I haven't read yet, though I I have a copy. Uh, So uh, I highly recommend Legutko as kind of a uh, introduction to the idea of post-liberalism as a rejection of the liberal democratic world order.
0: Yeah, you should record it. I don't think you have <laughs> cuz I I'm working
1: backward. So I'm I'm uh, almost uh, <laughs> so I I started doing recording them and so I I I'm working backward. I'm almost through 2018, and that's back in 2017. So uh, I, I work backward through the through the old ones in recording. I try to put up two things a week, either written. For a while, I was writing two, or three new pieces a week. I've slowed down a bit, um, but there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of, uh, of stuff. Uh, Darren Beatty did me the favor yesterday of, of publishing on not. He didn't talk to me about. It. I, don't, I don't know Darren Beatty, but Revolver News published my most recent piece on Glass House, which is about a, a it's a business. Uh, political economy piece on the front page of Revolver News. So I'm getting thousands of (laughs) thousands of reads now from uh, on on that piece, which is nice. So uh, I I did put that up recently.
0: That's excellent. I think, uh, you know, Darren's, uh, Darren's definitely a a good pipeline to be in for, for uh, he's, he's, posted mine a few times. I, he never tells, but I, I can tell if I look <laughs> at my analytics.
1: Yeah, no, I saw I saw, I saw a, a spike. So, I mean, it, it, it's funny. It's a, I can't tell what's going to be popular sometimes. I mean, some things get, you know, I don't know, a couple thousand views. Some get 20,000 views uh, or reads, depending on how you, how you, how you look at it. Uh, sometimes I think things are going to be wildly popular, and then I publish them and they're not that popular. And then sometimes I publish, like I published a, a 30,000 word piece on the, what I call the Brondo tyranny, which is about the, uh, my term for the clown show of our current uh, tyranny, our current government. Um, but it was hyper analytical. It was all very legal and people just loved it. I'm like, what the hell, who, who, you know, who has time to stand and read this obscure legalese that I, I wrote out? So I, it's funny that sometimes people like stuff. I, I don't think they will and vice versa.
0: I think that's uh, I I've, I've read that one. I'm I listened to it to be honest, <laughs> <laughs> which is almost as good as reading it, um, almost as legitimate. And uh, I I think the, the the innovation about that one was you know it, it's you know because typically when you present your thought, it's very much in you know kind of in mirroring some some other person's thought, and you know you yeah. kind of say okay this is stupid, this is smart, I like this, yeah. I don't like that. But that one was kind of probably the the, the most the longest piece of your own ideas
1: and it was yeah yeah, so i think my my, my wife says the same thing that the people demand your original thoughts and so which is very flattering so of course i I think that must be right you
0: were you were coining a phrase people love coining a phrase you know like uh, yeah okay i can see that yeah okay (laughs)
1: okay. right the the book reviews to me are interesting but you're right i mean they're derivative in a sense the derivative of their and and, uh, as i as i like to say I'm not really doing book reviews. I'm using them as a vehicle for my own thoughts. And if you don't like it, you're in the wrong place. But nonetheless, they're derivative of of other people's thoughts because they're used tends to be used as the frame even though I tend to also go very far afield in many of my reviews. It comes back to whatever I'm reviewing ultimately.
0: Yeah. And I think I, I really love the book reviews. I mean, I think that's a, a lot of times how people find out, you know, how people discover your stuff. And then they see, you know, kind of you take these positions, sometimes they're a bit, you know, extreme for the normie. Uh, and then people <laughs> want <laughs> to know how, how, why, how come. <laughs>
1: how, well, that, that, come? That's also why, uh, you know, you, see, you hear a lot of people when they, on podcasts, they're like, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. I never bother because a lot of my reviews are negative because people are searching for something about a book and they have never heard of me. And then they listen to it and they're like, what the hell is this? This is terrible. <laughs> this guy is awful. And they leave a one-star review. So I, I, I accept that I'll never be, be well reviewed on on Apple Podcasts because normies who think totally differently are appalled by my, my thoughts that they just come to when they want to learn about a book. Sorry about that.
0: <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's quite uh Interesting that you you do review leftist books as well. Or you have? I think you, I said have, you don't really want to do it anymore. It's so well, it's draining, shooting but... fish in
1: a barrel, right? It's shooting fish in a barrel and kind of a waste of time. Um, uh, but I might occasionally. Um, it, I might be inspired let's put it that way yeah some some of the you
0: know the the highlights i think you um was like this anarchist handbook or something that you uh no the antifa handbook antifa handbook yeah
1: (laughs) that that, right that's a good example because i I did that after i said i was going to stop reviewing leftist books so uh, i think i said i'll not review leftist books simply to dissect them I'll, i'll only do it as part of a larger thing and so the antifa thing was done to get a better understanding of the enemy rather than simply to say why they were wrong because that's self-evident and not particularly helpful.
0: Yeah, to be honest, your, your reviews are about as close as I get to interacting with this material, so I'm, so I'm, I'm <laughs> grateful.
1: <laughs> public, pub, public service.
0: Yeah, it is good, you know, we, we need it. I, I don't want to be one of those completely ignorant right-wing, you know, freaks that's just like, you know, I don't know, listens to Rush Limbaugh or whatever. And so.
1: <laughs> No, and I, I've never, like, I've never, I mean, I, Rush Limbaugh was, I think, good for what he was, and he was very important for a variety of reasons. But I can never get into, like, the talk radio or Mark Levin or, or these people people. Yeah, no, uh, I, I haven't
0: not. done that either. But it's, it's it's interesting, you know, that's kind of the stereotype, you know, someone in, in their basement, you know, listening. To <laughs> yes, <laughs> some, exactly. some someone rambling. Um, so I, I also want to ask you the, the question of the show, which is, um, yeah, do you have a, a subversive thinker that you think is not getting enough, uh, enough spotlight, enough uh, interest? <laughs> uh,
1: uh, well, I do. And in fact, I'm prepared for this question. Can I can I name two?
0: Yeah, name as many as you want for sure.
1: Okay, okay. so uh, I came up with with two um, both of which I reviewed uh, once or twice on the on my site. So and both of which are I hesitate a little bit to name these two because the, the the commonality between them will make it look like I like I'm more dubious than I am. but I'll do it anyway. So Carl Schmidt and Ernst Jummer. So uh, so, and it's, these aren't uh, that obscure. So I noticed, for example, uh, Amari in his podcast with you, uh, named Juan de Noso Cortez as uh, as his person. Now Cortez is more uh, is more obscure than uh, than either of these guys. But so I think Carl Schmidt is extremely valuable uh, uh, because he is the kind of modern theorist of power and the enemy, both things which are of great interest to me. So uh, I, for example, can recommend uh, uh, a couple, I haven't read by any means all of Schmidt's stuff. I would actually recommend people try a book by a guy named Gopal Balakrishnan, who wrote a book summarizing a lot of Schmidt's thought a couple, couple of years ago called The Enemy, the writings of, or the thought of Carl Schmidt, which it, which does a good job of talking about it, but I think Schmidt has a great deal to say about uh, our current moment, as uh, particularly the friend-enemy distinction, the importance of uh, viewing enemies not ideologically but politically, is uh, something that the left fails to do, which causes no end of, uh, of catastrophic problems historically, and he he has just a lot of interesting things to say that uh, will bear fruit, I think, in the uh, upcoming upcoming times. Um, he talks a lot of, one of Schmidt's concepts is the catacon, which is a concept from uh, 2 Thessalonians about the, uh, the force that restrains the Antichrist, which is not, we're not talking a spiritual force here, but it says a lot about what our future will look like uh, as uh, pressure builds up within the system. So I think that kind of stuff is very worth Worth reading. And uh, I actually think he's very difficult to read. I, mean, I I don't read him, I don't have enough German to, I have hardly any German anymore. Um, so I, I, it's all in, in English translation. Um, his books are expensive, hard to get, difficult to read. So it, it's a real commitment. Junger is less of a commitment. Um, everyone thinks of Junger as a as kind of coterminous with Schmidt. And yes, they are both Germans from the 20th century involved in the conservative revolution during Weimar. Uh, and they have a certain commonality in that they're both opposed to liberal democracy, but they're very different. Everyone thinks of Jünger as normally for his book, The Storm of Steel, which is about his experience in World War I, which is interesting, but I think not particularly relevant. Uh, I would <clears throat> I read two books of his, which I have reviews of, which are, are actually probably their views I'm proudest of or happiest with. Uh, the Forest Passage and Yumisville, which are One is a book of philosophy about uh, what he calls the Anarch, which is frequently but wrongly taken to be a libertarian conception of how one should live. And Umisville is a decades later book written as dystopian science fiction. So you wouldn't think those two things cover the same same, uh, ground, but they do. And they relate to how a person should live in difficult times, and in particular, uh, how we should live under the tyranny of liberal democracy. They are not as they are commonly read uh, books about Nazism or more traditional tyrannies, but rather about the the more applicable tyrannies of the modern world, which is why I think they're so valuable. Junger wrote many other things. I've read some of them, not others. They're all very interesting, but that's what I would recommend for the specific answer to the question. I would read Schmidt uh, and I would read those two books uh, of Ernst Junger
0: yeah i think i think people are are starting to to be a bit more interested in Schmidt because there's this the the meme about the friend enemy distinction that's just making its rounds <laughs> across the uh,
1: yeah and it's it's and I, it's it's a much longer topic and i'm not really qualified to to go into in all details but it it is very much worth uh worth looking at
0: yeah um I'm I'm curious um one more question kind of cropped up in the in the idea that you know uh you know we're we're looking for the the post liberal not solution, but we're kinda of exploring the post liberal space. Um Michael Millerman was on the podcast recently and he's kind of a, a scholar of Dugan. Dugan's obviously a, a mm-hmm. guy who's like loaded with a lot of connotations, no one likes him, he's a weirdo. But <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's what they say about me too. What
0: the hell? <laughs> well, you have something in common. Uh he is working on something called, you know, the, the fourth political theory. I, I'm curious if have you have you looked into this? Have you have you explored the, the, the Duganist space at
1: all? I I have not. And uh, I, I've thought that I should do that but I have a lot of other things I think I should do and I never get around to it and as you say he has reputation as is it's, being yeah, odd
0: it, it is so- he is odd but to be honest i think you know i think millerman makes an interesting case he has a few podcasts about what is contained in the fourth political theory he's probably the best scholar on dugan and he's putting out a course on dugan now at this well. okay if you if you if you want
1: an intermediary to to no i, I will do parse that. him
0: i, I think it's really I've interesting. i've not listened to
1: that podcast i've listened to most of the podcasts but but i've not listened to that one so now i will go and do that
0: oh yeah no <laughs> no, no i haven't published it yet because to be honest oh, i okay i'm,
1: I'm like it's no, no, no. It's,
0: it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out. And uh, he, he has his own podcast, Millerman Talks. So yeah, if you're, if okay, you're curious about it that, it's, it's really good. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm building up episodes right now because I'm, you know, I'm going to have a baby any minute yeah, now. Well, so. Which is
1: awesome. <laughs> I, I strongly encourage everyone to have lots of children. So, um, you know, we, we, need, we need more children, boy or girl, Boy, that'd be a boy, boy a, a, a leader so, yeah. of men. <laughs> that, 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 maybe he'll be the man of destiny. will be, be, he'll pick up the crown of France with his sword or the crown of something with his sword.
0: Crown kind of, yeah, Western Transylvania, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> will <see. laughs> Yeah, well, we're going back to city-states, guys. It's coming.
1: <laughs> maybe. Well, you know, I, I know you've mentioned the, the Saxon uh, towns on your on your podcast before with the, and I've seen some of those too, obviously, in the. Uh, yeah, they're very impressive uh, fortifications just right for a small city state. So, yeah,
0: yeah, we we definitely have them. I mean, they're probably the most impressive thing cuz, you know, we've we've had some, you know, Mongol infestations
1: and things <laughs> like that. So Well, the Saxons are all gone now, aren't they? Didn't they all move back to Germany? Most for the of most them, part. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. There's there's some tensions, you know. And so no reason to stay behind, you know. They they had their you know. They they sat here for what about like three four hundred years. Enough. Yeah, <laughs> it's nicer.
1: Yeah, I mean that's you know, my change is inevitable, and I I, I you see that. And not not to go off on a, a tangent, but the the. the Demographic change is inevitable. And a lot of people, it's sad the Saxons are gone, but you, you understand why that is. And that, uh, my biggest concern is that everyone's going to be gone if people don't start having children. So and I saw the other day the New York Times came out with an article, I'm I'm pounding this drum for a while, but the New York Times came out with an article about how, which gives it official uh, mainstream imprimatur that, uh, that the population collapse is our real problem, not, the, not population growth
0: yeah yeah it's it's definitely a a big thing i've i've thought about it i'm you know being kind of in the context of (laughs) you know thinking about every day if i want to or not um yeah it's 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 a, a looming issue and there's so many things that could be at the root of it or maybe probably are at the same time yeah, yeah so yeah it's 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 a it's another topic for another very long yes. <laughs> long conversation um but thank you so much charles this was this was lovely to to get my to, chat pleasure. to you thank you um, and thank you for all you're doing i mean this is this is very very useful work and i i'm keen to to see you on more of the anton podcast on more of the revolver news you get get around there and uh yeah spread I'll, the I'll, spread the
1: gospel i'll, I'll do my best. Um, I, I, I Likewise for you, I find your, your podcast to be extremely illuminating and uh, I enjoy the wide variety of guests. And uh, there, there will uh, have actually recorded another Anton podcast. So there will be another one of those, uh, those coming up next month some, sometime. So um, spicy takes all around. Perfect. Well, that's that's what we can come to expect. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: um, where can people find your your work, your links, your
1: things? Uh, the best place is theworthyhouse.com, theworthyhouse.com. I, I encourage people to sign up for email notifications. I do not accept money or ask you for money or have ads. So uh, I merely think people should sign up to get uh, notifications. Um, so that they can uh, know when I, I do uh, do writings. I also am on Twitter and YouTube and so on. But you can never tell when those things will disappear. So I encourage people to to go to the main site from where you can get written versions and audio versions and what have you.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So I, I recommend that people do that as well. It's a it's a very worthwhile place to 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 spend a few a few lots of hours. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks again for coming on. Thank you
1: very much. Nice to talk to you.
0: If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.